Okay, hello everyone. Settle in, settle in. Wow, what a blessing to see a full room here. Thank you for such a warm and kind welcome here at Harvard. My name is Andrew Ascariport. I'm from Long Island, New York. And wow. <laughs> what a gift. I feel so honored to be able to come here today and speak to not only this club, but I know there's others who have joined from far away. I see some familiar faces, which is a blessing. And I'm so happy to be able to speak about a topic that is um, so dear to my heart. Uh, a lifestyle and a path that has altered the course of my life. And before I begin, I want to see whoever is comfortable who here has had a significant life-altering experience with a psychedelic or plant medicine? Wow. For those who can't see the people in the room on the live stream, it's about 75% or <laughs> so. Thank you for your honesty and your transparency because I know um, in certain communities and in certain cultures, it's not uh, so easy to admit that. And um, it takes courage these days to really stand up for what we believe in. So thank you for sharing. Well, as I said, my name is Andrew. And as my elders, as my teachers, as my grandparents have always taught me, I like to begin anything I do with gratitude, giving thanks to those who came before me, giving thanks to my ancestors, giving thanks to my teachers, giving thanks to those have, who have imparted the wisdom and teachings that I try to carry every day. So giving thanks to my dear brother Radimiz who introduced me to Yana. Thank you, Yana, for all of your organization and all of the efforts that you've put into making this happen. I know there's many other people who have met on the board who have also contributed a lot. So thank you. And um, yes, I'm here to only speak about my personal experience with plant medicines and specifically how I came to begin using them in a more ceremonial native indigenous uh, context, which I believe is very important and is missing here in the States and in the West in general, um, within certain communities, not all. Myself being a part of that during my teenage years, my recreational years. And for me, I think I have a, a similar journey to many. I grew up in New York. I am a first-generation American. My mother is from Jamaica. My father is from Iran. And growing up as a first-generation American, having the, um, the comforts that my parents did not have, they both grew up in the countryside of their countries, deep in the mountains. They grew up in a way in which they both needed to cook their food on an open fire and go collect their own drinking water and um, lived in a way that was very different than most of us were probably raised, am I right? Um, and for me, growing up in this way and hearing the stories of my parents' countries and the way in which, um, you know, if one of them or one of their siblings fell sick, their parents couldn't just run to the pharmacy. You know, their pharmacy was the jungle. It was the forest. They had to actually have a an understanding of the local plants 
the local healing modalities that they had access to. So there was a deeper connection to nature, obviously, in that way. And for me, growing up in Long Island, New York, you know, eating McDonald's, listening to hip hop, and just running around like a crazy kid, um, I think I took for granted as a young child um, how hard my parents actually had to work to make it to middle class America and provide a, um, a really nourishing lifestyle for me and my older brothers. And from a young age, having my grandmother in the household, which was a big blessing who I give the ultimate thanks to, I did have a, a deep understanding that um, there were ways in which humans were living and connecting to their environment that are very different to how we do today. And as I grew older, I started to um, ask my parents more questions about where they came from, ask them more about their cultures, their traditions, um, the way in which they, they had to survive, the way in which um, they had to farm. And for me, as I got into my teenage years, my rebellious years, I, of course, um, started to be of age to start experimenting with certain substances, certain plants, and not only actually meeting these psychedelic medicines and other plants in general, but also meeting some of their traditions, some of their histories, and becoming really interested in learning from the people who were carrying these traditions for hundreds, thousands of years. And, you know, we could sit here all night and I can speak about some of the recreational experiences I had um, during my teenage years, but. I think um, welcome, welcome. I I think for me, for the people, you had to move the camera. Yes. Okay. No problem. I think for me, as I began to experiment during my teenage years, I um, was going through a process of whether I knew it or not, trying to access something deeper within myself. Uh, of course, during these years of crucial development and finding our identity that we do in middle school and high school, I was also trying to find a way to reconnect and, and reach past the superficial aspects that I was starting to perceive from society. And, I didn't know exactly how to do this. I had friends who I started creating music with. I had friends who I started having different philosophical conversations with. I had a process in which I was starting to seek outside of myself for something to bring me back to myself, if that makes any sense. And the glimpses I received of, of that through my experimentation with different plant medicines, and I wanna note that it wasn't only psychedelic plant medicines, it was herbal remedies as a whole, the practice of, of natural healing through plants and, and other, other means. I started to receive glimpses that uh, the way in which we perceive reality is, is severely limited by the way we, the way in which we are willing to explore the possibilities of opening our minds through the means of these indigenous tools and technologies that many people have been carrying for years. 
So I had these experiences at a young age or, you know, mid-teens or so that opened me up a little bit, but they were not what I consider uh, intentionally sacred. It was more of um, hanging out with friends, you know, messing around with these, these things. And it's, it's not something I ad advocate for any longer, but it's how my path did begin. And it's what planted a seed for me. So after I graduated high school and I went on to go to college, an entirely different era of my life in which many of you obviously here can relate to, a uh, deeper level and deeper opportunity to find myself and being more deeply versed into academia in general, um, I started to have what I would consider a, a spiritual awakening in some ways that was forced um, due to a health crisis. I started to have a lot of difficulty in my body in, in different areas. I'll spare everyone the details, but um, I was having intestinal issues. I was having a lot of stomach issues. I was having um, visits to the doctor in which they were prescribing medications for the pain I was going through. And, you know, maybe it would help for a little bit, but for the most part, things that I needed to change or that I wanted to change within myself were not getting better at all. If anything, they were getting worse. And in this way, I started to think, oh, you know, I was just eating a standard American diet. I was trying to be as conscious as I could then. But I had older brothers who were vegetarians and vegans, and I had never thought that would be me at all. And when I started to go through these physical health issues, I said, oh, maybe I should give that a try. And becoming a vegetarian at that age of, of 19 years old and being exposed to other people who thought in very different ways. I got exposed to yoga and Eastern spiritual practices and that belief system. And I got to meet other people. And I had this entire change of identity happen around my freshman year of college. And in those moments, I had a deep remembrance and a deep curiosity again, like I did as a child, of how my parents were raised, how connected their parents were to the land and dependent to the land. And from this, I just started studying indigenous peoples of everywhere, you know, Africa, Asia, uh, all over India, all over the Americas, North, Central and South, um, all over Europe, and seeing how people who were a little bit more connected to the land and the regions in which um, had not been too affected by colonialism, how their health was, what type of foods did they eat, what type of practices did they engage in, how did they live in community with one another. And through this um, light studies that I began doing into this topic, the thing that just kept popping up was the use and knowledge of different plants in the area. And beginning to study the field of ethnobotany, I came across one of the most legendary Harvard alumni, Richard Irvin Schultes. Maybe some of you know about this man who is considered the grandfather of ethnobotany in the West. I'll say that because there have been many other indigenous grandfathers and grandmothers of ethnobotany all over. But this man, Richard Irvin Schultes, and his path and his journeys down to the Amazon, to the Andes, and his field research, it really inspired me a lot. And it gave me a lot of content to be able to learn about the ways in which we as humans are dependent on plants 
and of this earth, which is obvious. And through this research of ethnobotany and anthropology through this lens, I, of course, was reintroduced to the power of what we in the West call psychedelics, what we call entheogens, um, what they call medicines. So if during this talk you hear me refer to psychedelics as medicines, that is because that is the term that I've learned from many elders, many teachers, because that is how they see these, these substances as medicine. So for me, after I graduated college, I was a recent college graduate. I did not have a job like so many recent college graduates don't. And I was back home at my parents. It was the winter of 2015 going into 2016. And at this point, I was really fervently uh, consuming all day long different uh, ethnobotanical literatures that were the, the classics and different obscure articles and really reading a lot about ayahuasca and peyote and, and all these different medicines that um, cultures were still alive in different places. And I was going through a difficult moment in my life that winter. Um, I was going through uh, some, some challenges. And one day something just popped in my head of, oh, you know, maybe you should go try that peyote stuff that you've heard about, that the natives do in the Southwest. And I went online, I tried to find like, I mean, imagine going online trying to find a, a shaman to give you peyote or something. I mean, not the best idea, but nowadays you can, you can do it. <laughs> um, I couldn't find anywhere that felt good for me. Um, there were a couple different churches that were illegal and this and that. And I just wasn't finding something that resonated. So I was like, oh, well, if I can't take peyote, maybe I can just take ayahuasca instead, you know? Very different, very, very, very different plant medicines, as I'm sure some of you know. And I knew that I didn't want to go to Peru to take ayahuasca for the first time. Um, I love Peru. It's somewhere I've been three times. Um, I actually want to return and possibly have a home in Peru one day. But I did not want to go to Peru specifically to drink ayahuasca because I was always hearing, oh, Peru is the ayahuasca tourism capital of this planet. There's an endless amount of ayahuasca centers. There's all these crazy hippie shamans down there who you can't trust. There's all this witchcraft and all this crazy stuff I was hearing. I was like, I want to go somewhere more, less well-known, more chill, more relaxed. So I was doing my Googles again, and I found this retreat center in the Andes of Ecuador. And this center was serving um, ayahuasca, they were serving San Pedro cactus, which is a mescaline-containing cactus, one of my favorite medicines of all time. And they were doing some Temescal sweat lodge ceremonies. And this website, or rather this center, had hundreds of reviews, maybe three, 400 reviews. 90% um, of them were positive, maybe more. 95% of them were positive. And I said, you know, there's no way everyone could be faking these reviews and testimonials of this transformational time they've had at this place. You know, speaking well about the medicine men and medicine women who were working at the center. So just as a, a leap of faith and out of sheer, not curiosity, but a, um, what I would consider from being honest, a um, 
divine guide or something beyond myself that really was pulling me there, uh, a dream, essentially, I decided to, to book a flight and go down and experience my first official plant medicine retreat. So I went to the mountains of Ecuador. It was my first time traveling to South America. And I went to this retreat center and I was offering, they were offering two ayahuasca ceremonies, two San Pedro ceremonies, and two sweat lodges and some other offerings. And I can speak about this one journey. This was about seven years ago. I could probably speak about this for the whole time here, but to, to keep it short, I think we know where we're going. It changed my life forever, this experience. I went down there for this ayahuasca experience and I fell in love with all the traditions, all of the ways in which these medicine people, these, for lack of a better term, I, I don't enjoy the term shaman for countless reasons, but these people who are very closely um, related to the path of sacred plant teachers, to see their knowledge, to see how much that these practices have benefited their own lives, their own families, their own communities, it really touched me to, to my core. And to see the level of what I consider um, mastery or on the path to mastery, to see the level of professionalism, to see the level of care and love that these people were, were carrying in the mountains of Ecuador, it showed me that, oh, okay, Andrew, there's really something else to these practices of using these sacred plant medicines other than just taking mushrooms or taking ayahuasca and running around the forest or something, you know? It all sounds obvious, right, for, for many of you, but I was young, I, I didn't know. And I didn't know exactly what it meant to read in a book about Richard Evan Schulte's experiences with different tribes and then actually go down there and sit with people who have received their blessings from the Shuar in the jungle, people who have received their different blessings from the Taitas in the Andes. And for me, I can speak a little bit in detail about the, the benefits I received from specifically ayahuasca and San Pedro and some of these other traditions. But what I really wanna to get to as well during this discussion is the impact that the sacred ceremony had on my life. Because when I first went into that maloka and I got to experience the, the plant medicine of ayahuasca, when I got to see the format of the ceremony and the different actions that were being taken, the different rituals, um, when I got to sit around a sacred fire with, I don't know how many other people, 20 people and see people sobbing, seeing people vulnerably speak about their traumas, seeing people, uh, throwing up all over the place, um, seeing the, the medicine man and medicine women pray with a sacred tobacco, pray with a pipe, use plants in different ways that I've never seen them used. Something felt so familiar to me about this. It felt as if, I always say that first ceremony I had down there, it felt as if I returned home in some way. And I really wanna be direct in this. I'm not saying that it felt as if I felt like, oh, I can do this, or I want to do this, or this is something I did in my past life. None of this stuff. I'm not you know, one of those overly woo-woo kind of people where I had all these visions or illusions of grandeur. You know? What I saw was, oh, this is a universally human practice that we used to do. We used to gather around the fire. We used to sing songs together. Everyone, you know, this whole topic of um, 
who's indigenous and who's not. It's an important topic. I, I speak a lot about it, and I think it's one to be very mindful of. But what I think is very important to know is that at some point in each and every one of our ancestries, we were indigenous. What does that word truly mean? The local people pre-colonialism of a certain land who had not been impacted by other people coming in and taking their culture away. And people in ancient Europe had their practices. People in ancient Egypt, in Iran, where my father is from, in Jamaica, the Arawak people, in Africa, all those different tribes, and all of the Americas. There were certain practices that were universally human, working with plants, working with animals, uh, certain ways of devotion, of, div of divination. And when I sat in that ceremony, I felt as if I found a new belonging as a global citizen of this planet, especially seeing how these elders and these teachers welcomed everybody of all races, of all religions, from Catholics to Hindus to Muslims to all types of people. And for me, experiencing that level of very strong psychedelic work, I also was exposed to, um, how can I say this as honestly and clearly as possible, the seriousness of that work. How important it is to see these medicines as sacred as so many other traditions and cultures have for so long. Because just to be blunt, it's, it's not a joke. I know people personally who have been, um, who have not been well after certain experiences due to a lack of um, true skill or professionalism or of training from the person who is leading them through um, a certain ceremony. Because in, in any field of work, there are always going to be people who um, can either A, simply and uh, without malice make mistakes. But beyond that, in any field, there's people who are human, of course, and may not have your best interests at heart. So for me, being in a setting in which I felt so safe and so loved and so well taken care of, and I got to see and learn from these people, like, oh, where did you learn from? Uh, what elders did uh, you come in contact with during your path? How have you amassed this uh, knowledge and skill in seeing that these people came from clear lineages? They came from clear traditions that have existed for a very long time. I saw the importance of using these medicines within a ceremonial context with someone you can really trust has your best interest in heart because when you are d drinking ayahuasca deep in the jungle or high in the mountains, your life is in that person's hands. And I think it's a, it's a reason why we see now here in the West this very tight, restricted, which I support in many ways, uh, use of the medicines in a very clinical setting. Um, I have my, my feelings about that, which I can get into, but I think it's clear that it's important, obviously, set and setting these, these things that we hear so often. So for me, what I personally received from 
my experiences in Ecuador was a cessation of the physical issues I was dealing with within 10 days. And I'm not someone who touts these medicines as miracle pills. You know, they're not. They're not uh, one-day fixes. But for me, what I was going through was remedied very quickly. Um, it's not to say it lasted that way forever, you know, but I felt relief right away for multiple reasons. <laughs> and for me, I also felt a responsibility to really honor truly what I see as sacred in my life and as what these communities down there see as sacred. This earth, Father Sky, our family members, our community, uh, the way in which we treat one another, it made me a more present and uh, I would say I was already a kind person, but more compassionate, more understanding because I'm someone who went down there to South America, not with some severe trauma, to be honest. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not a competition. Trauma is never a competition, but to admit there's other people who have been through some really terrible things who I met down there who were seeking some serious help. And to see the relief that many of those people got from one ceremony and then from two ceremonies and from three ceremonies and people who were able to resolve things that they've been dealing with for 25 plus years. And also that's it, they didn't return to the medicines. I know people who went, they drank ayahuasca twice, they haven't drank since for 10 years and they're still feeling the benefits of what they received. Same with San Pedro, same with even a sweat lodge ceremony. When I got to observe these changes in people, that is what really sparked my interest of, okay, I would like to learn more now. So I made it uh, an intention of mine to speak to this uh, family of medicine men and medicine women, and get to get a little bit closer to them, to get to know them more deeply and ask questions, you know, why do you do this in ceremony? Why do you build the fire in this certain way? Why do you ask us to move in this certain rhythm in the ceremony? Why do you sing that song in that moment? Um, why do you prepare the medicine in that way? And through this asking of questions, uh, there was a, a clear response, you know? They would sit with me after ceremony. They would tell me why they did certain things. They would explain certain things. And, I think from them seeing my, my interests, they took a liking to me and, and were willing to, to tell me more because some of this information isn't given so, so freely just to anybody um, because people can use it uh, now with the best of intentions. So I forged a very close relationship with this family of, of medicine men and medicine women in Ecuador. And I got to learn more about their lineages and their traditions. And after that, which was February of 2016. I returned back to Ecuador every year since then, which I still go down and support that family and work with them and support them, help them and apprentice with them in, in many ways. And sometimes I have difficulty referring to them as, as my teachers because what I have found with anyone, any elder, any teacher who's really willing to teach, they never want that title. You know, I think that's a measure of, of someone to maybe steer clear of, people who want to be your guru, people who want to be your, they, you, that see you as their devotee. Um, there's a lot of issues with that, which is a whole other conversation. But 
I see them as family and they accepted me as, as family and started to teach me different things. And I've been returning back down to South America and Central America now and have connected with some communities here in the States as well who have been teaching me different things that um, have deeply impacted my path and my journey. And I've been fortunate enough to be received by these people as not only a part of their family, but as someone who is willing to learn about how these practices can truly assist people within their context. Because a big reason of why I'm here tonight is to speak about the implementation of the more ancient and more intentional and more reverent uses of what I refer to as these medicines. And I think, uh, you know, maybe some of you have seen some of the, the videos when people, you know, have psychedelic sessions. I'm, I'm really up to date with all the research and, you know, there's some examples where you can watch videos. And sometimes I, I, I cringe and sometimes I jump with excitement because I know it's beautiful work as well. But sometimes I cringe because I just see this person in what looks like a hospital bed in like this white room hooked up to all these, you know, devices and tubes and... I think, wow, if I were to be tripping out in that room, I don't know if I would have the best of experiences. Obviously, obviously people do. But after some of the experiences I've had, specifically in nature with these substances, I can't imagine not doing it in a setting like that. And I'll return back to this, but I'm not someone who is touting that you have to go down to South America or sit in a teepee and do these psychedelics in that context to receive benefit. I truly do believe it's obvious through the research that people are receiving immense benefit, even in that context. But I can only speak to, to what I know, and I can only speak to what I believe has been incredibly beneficial for me, for many of the communities that I'm a part of, and I think it's something that is not spoken about often enough. So this brings up this topic of Ceremony. What is ceremony? What goes on in ceremony? For me, it's very difficult to define because there's so many different containers of working with uh, uh, what we refer to as a psychedelic medicine within a ceremonial context. I do see what some of these clinical trials are doing as a form of ceremony, even though if I judge that it's watered down a little bit or diluted, I still see it as a ceremony in some, in some regards. But for me, ceremony is a space and time in which an individual or a group enters into with immense intention and focus on what is sacred within and around us, what is alive within and around us, and an opportunity to safely explore ourselves, our psyches within a specific container. I'm using this word container often because that's what ceremony is. It's a space that we can enter into and know, okay, I'm being held. I'm either being guided, or I'm guiding myself. I'm either being supported by another or I'm supporting myself through these different rituals that occur in ceremony. And for me, something that I had to learn very quick was that there were 
there were explanations behind certain actions that were occurring in the ceremony that I thought were superstitious or just like, oh, why do they say that? You know, for example, you enter a teepee or you enter a maloka and there's, you know, usually it's, it's open, a maloka, so you can easily, if you need to get up and get out of your seat, you can just go out the back if you wanted to. Well, that's not advised. They say you must use the door. You must walk outside this place that we designate as the door. And preferably, please do it in a clockwise motion or sunwise motion. There's a whole, we can go down a rabbit hole of why that is. But at first I said, oh, why, if this person wants to get up and it's more easier just to go out the back, why, why can't they do that, you know? So I would come to learn, one, there's a practical reason and then there's a symbolic reason which is typically the case with ceremonial work. There's something that's suggested because it's more practical and it usually has a symbolic and spiritual connotation as well. So for example, with the door, um, the practical reason is when someone is having a strong ayahuasca or peyote or San Pedro experience and they walk out, the ceremonial leader wants to see that that person walked out and that they come back. And the person who is in charge of making sure that everyone is safe and contained wants to be able to see when people go out and come in so that they can keep track of them, which is very important. There's an entire role for this person outside of the ceremonial leader, someone to be seated by the door to make sure that everyone who comes and goes makes it back safely. So that's the practical reason for that. But the more symbolic and spiritual reason is because they see this line of direct energy being directed in and out from the ceremonial leader to the altar, to the sacred fire, to the place in front of the sacred fire, to the doorway. And that everything should be moving in that line. And that if people just start scattering out all over the place, the energy gets chaotic and things can get loose. And I used to say, okay, so these, these certain things, that's just one example, but these certain things, do they really hold any importance? And I would see when people would, would go against some of these suggestions that the medicine men and medicine women would suggest and see what would happen to the space. So why do I tell this story or, or share this example? Because in ceremony, specifically in many of these ancient ceremonies, they're not only, it's not only a space that we go into with intention. It's not only a container in which we're held safely and, and it's, it's responsibly held. These traditions, these ceremonies, these rituals have been handed down for thousands or hundreds or centuries of years for a reason. And there's immense technology behind the way in which these rituals and these practices are implemented within the space. And Essentially, what a lot of these practices boil down to, what would, would be called harm reduction here in the States. That would probably be the term that people would explain why these ceremonies exist and why they do certain things a certain way. It all boils down to harm reduction. Making sure that people have as positive of an experience as possible. And I see I'm not going to call anyone out, but I see some faces in this room who I know have experienced the ceremony. I'm sure they could agree with what I'm saying inside. Um, that these moments of extreme vulnerability, these moments in which um, 
very difficult processes are being uh, brought forth out of one, oneself. It can be really difficult to, to face certain things from our past, from our present, or things that we're anxious about in, in the future. And things can go in, in many different directions. And it's why I'm an advocate for using these very powerful and sacred medicines with a guide. And within a ceremonial context, within a good ceremonial context by a skilled practitioner or shaman, they have the years, they have the decades of experience. And not only do they have that, they have the centuries or thousands of years of tradition passed down to them, which have given them the instructions of, oh, this is what you do if this person goes into anaphylactic shock. Or this is what you do if this person is having a very deep traumatic experience resurface. Some of these people deep in the jungle and high in the mountains, I think, uh, handle these experiences. Uh, I don't want to say better. In some cases, yes, better. But as well as the most um, esteemed and established psychologists or psychiatrists or these therapists who, who lead some of these sessions here in the States. So. For me, after some of the experiences I had during my teenage years, after some of the experiences I had in my early 20s, I saw that this practice of meeting with these substances within a more indigenous, a more ancient, a more um, intentional ceremonial setting was of immense importance for people. And when I would come back to the States after my journeys to Ecuador, my journeys to Peru, I'd go back to Long Island, I'd go back to Manhattan, Brooklyn, and I'd see an um, ayahuasca ceremony in someone's basement this weekend, you know? I'd see, uh, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't want to say some of the things I've seen, <laughs> um, just to be honest. I saw a lot of people offering very sacred, very powerful medicines in very loose or non-existent containers. And as I said earlier, I, I, I witnessed a lot of um, not only negligence, but harm happen to people. Um, sometimes uh, some harm that has not been able to be repaired for some. And that is what really propelled me to sink myself deeper into, at the very least, learning the ways, both Western and ancient, that we can protect people during these, these journeys that they're going through. And for me, this Western model that's uh, occurring now, this psychedelic renaissance that's happening um, all over this planet, it makes me really excited. It makes me really jump for joy seeing that these things that were once taboo are being accepted more for their obvious benefits. I mean, the research is out. I'm not going to speak to this club and to all of you who I'm sure can read the studies yourself and have already done, done so. It's clear that these psychedelic substances can help heal and at least provide um, remedies to certain issues that Western medication can't. And 
I see also very often these days in the West, um, a lack of either awareness or true reverence for these medicines in their true essence. So I don't know if anyone here, I'm sure some of you know about this term called the entourage effect. Anybody familiar when it comes to um, working with medicine, chemistry in general? So for example, in the ayahuasca vine, there's these beta carbolines, you know, harmaline, <coughs> these monoamine oxidase inhibitors that is what allows for the DMT, which is in another plant that is mixed with the ayahuasca vine, allows the DMT to be orally active within the body. So we have this enzyme in our stomach called monoamine oxidase that basically does not allow us to allow DMT to enter into our bloodstream. Because if we didn't have this enzyme in our stomach, we'd be eating certain things in nature and we'd just be tripping out. So we evolved to have this, this enzyme in us to stop that. So monoamine oxidase inhibitor stops that process. It shuts that off for that moment. And when that's mixed with DMT, then the DMT can be activated and enter the bloodstream and you can feel its effects. So there's these certain alkaloids in each plant medicine that you know, they consider the main constituents. But then there's sometimes 10, 20, 30, 40 other alkaloids that are paired within that substance that has an effect as well. But in Western science now and in the use of many of these medicines, they just say, let's take that one thing, let's take just that DMT. Well, let's just take mescaline from the peyote cactus and make a synthetic version and offer that. And if you only take the mescaline, if you only take this one thing, you're missing out on this entire cascade of other alkaloids within that plant that really do support that main alkaloid and have other effects. And essentially, uh, native peoples see this as stripping the medicine of its spirit. And that's their terminology, that's the way they see it, but there's actual chemical ramifications to that as well. And I bring all of this up because when we look at the use of plant medicines with a um, capitalistic mindset of how can we turn this into a pill, how can this be the next miracle drug, and we lose that reverence, how can we protect what we don't consider sacred? <clears throat> Truly, I'll, I'll say it again. How can we protect what we don't consider sacred? And not only how can we protect those resources, how can we protect the people who have been carrying these traditions and working with these medicines for thousands of years, who don't receive a lot of the benefit that the West is, rece is receiving now from working with these, with these medicines. So for me, if there's one message I want everyone to walk away with tonight is that the use of these plants and these plants themselves and the peoples in which they come from, which is everyone in this room, because all peoples have used some sort of sacred plant medicines or psychedelics, they deserve our reverence, they deserve our acknowledgement as uh, teachers and guides that should be protected. And that we should take a note out of um, 
again, Harvard alumni, Richard Evan Schulte, we should take a note out of his book of understanding that the ancient peoples who have been using these medicines are the ones who know the most about them. And they have something to teach us as well. And the way in which we learn more in that way is to at least study, not, not to say you have to go to Ecuador or Peru or one of these places, but at least study the way in which they use these medicines within a ceremonial context because there's reasons to why they do that. So for me, this has become my, my life path in many ways. I, I refer to myself as a ceremonialist, not because I, I just lead ceremonies. It's because I love the act of ceremony and I love the act of all ceremonies, not just plant medicines, psychedelic ceremonies. I love any type of intentional space in which we, we work with one another and we work with ourselves in a very sacred and, and specific way. And um, I've begun to go through different processes with you know these teachers, with these elders, with these uh, families that I've connected with that have allowed me to, to learn other things, you know, such as um, I've been involved in a, an indigenous practice called uh, the Vision Quest. Maybe some of you have heard about a Vision Quest. There's different modalities. A vision Quest is a um, pan-human practice that exists in, in every culture, actually, of essentially someone, usually a young person, but anyone at any age can do it, going up to a mountaintop, going into nature completely by themselves and fasting for a specific period of time. And for me, within the lineage that I'm working within, it's a four-year commitment that you're gonna go up to what they refer to as the mountain, and you're going to pray, you're going to fast, you're going to not see anyone for four days and four nights. You're not gonna eat, you're not gonna drink any water. And in this tradition, it's four nights the first year, seven nights the second year, nine nights the third year, and 13 nights the fourth year. And I am currently on my third year. I'll be doing my nine-day vision quest in just a few months. I bring all this up and I share this with you, which actually I haven't really shared publicly with many people at all, my close friends and, and community know. But I share this practice of um, vision questing, or what other people refer to as vision fasting, as... Um, an example of some of the things that these people do to earn the right to even serve medicine, to earn the right to lead certain traditions and, and, and carry certain traditions and lead certain ceremonies. Um, and when you fast on a mountain, when you dry fast on a mountain with nothing but two blankets and a tree, and you don't eat food and you don't drink water for four nights, you quickly discover what is sacred and what is important in life. You are more able to understand how much we can't take for granted the blessings we have in our lives of simply having clean water, simply having clean food. And it's these um, practices of indigenous peoples that connect them closer to the earth and connect them closer to the understanding that we are so dependent on, on other living beings in order to survive, in order to thrive. And with some of these insights that come from these different uh, initiation processes, you are then better able to 
speak from a place of experience. When I've heard some of my elders pray for the water, you know, there's a moment in certain ceremonies where they do these water prayers that are very long, sometimes an hour and a half just praying and speaking to the water. Um, when you go up the mountain and you do a vision quest and you don't drink water for four nights, you realize why these people are praying to the water. You realize why they're out there protecting the water as we have seen here in the States. So I bring this up again to speak to the gratitude we owe those on this planet who are reminding us of who we all are. We all belong to this earth. We all belong to a tradition in which we can sit around the fire, we can pray for the water, we can meet with these, these medicines that the earth has produced for us. Whether you want to see it as God, great spirit, the mystery, however you want to see it. There are these different medicines, there's these different teachings that do exist now and that are here to help us. And it is our birthright, each and every one of us, to get to experience and learn how we can better ourselves. And the plants are only one path. I know many other people who better themselves without any use of psychedelics, probably more people who don't. But this is an important path, and it's a path that has been shunned for a long time and that is making a, a comeback here in the West. And I think with that renaissance comes a really important acknowledgement of where these traditions and where these medicines have originated from. So I'm here just to speak about my journey and that's it. Um, I'm not here to pontificate or uh, judge anyone for the way they work with any of these substances. I think um, as long as you're doing it with love and care and responsibility and maturity and it's being uh, of benefit to you and the people around you, then so be it, you know. Go for a walk in the forest with your preferred choice, you know, of mushrooms safely. I mean, let me not recommend that to some people because some people that's not good for. But if someone wants to have one of these experiences themselves and they feel mature enough and ready enough, then so be it. We see some of these legalization efforts happening here in the States. But again, I think it comes with um, a lot of responsibility and it comes with a responsibility to learn from and connect with those who have been working with these plants for far longer than ourselves. So with that, I want this time together with this group in this room to be a, a time of true connection and exploration. I don't want to be the only one speaking in this room. I really, when Yana asked me, how, how do you see this talk going? I actually said, I just want to talk for a little bit and leave it to be an open discussion. And before maybe we enter into the more open discussion aspect of this, um, Maybe I can ask some of you if you have any questions for me directly, and then we can just open it up to this whole space and see if anybody has anything they want to share. Okay, you, please. Yes. Hello. Thank hey. you so much for this class. It was a lot of great. Um, What's your name? I'm Sam. Sam, nice to meet you, Sam. Uh, I have been thinking a lot about um, how in kind of Western youth culture nowadays, we 
adopted the term shrooms to describe <laughs> Yeah. And um, it's become a very casual drug now, almost along the likes of weed. Mm-hmm. And I know you're speaking to more ayahuasca, San Pedro, but also I'm assuming when you speak to psychedelics and ceremonial settings, you also include mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Most certainly. And I've become pretty worried about the fact that we've normalized such a, a substance that puts you in such a vulnerable place. Mm. Um, substance that is so important to growth that one should use love and care and responsibility in using in a way that one might not need to use with weed, for example. Um, mm. And I'm wondering, I, so I, I try to say, I try to recommend something to the person who says, oh yeah, like I'm gonna go do shrooms at this party on Saturday. Um, I try to say, wait, you know, pause. Uh, go to nature, like, do some research. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if you have some particular text or some, what, what you would say in a quick, like, bite-sized statement to someone who, who treats this term shrooms and, and this idea of mushrooms um, as, as quite casual. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I have little spiels that I say, but I'd be interested in what you might point them towards or what's mm-hmm. you might bring. Um, yeah. And if you don't mind repeating the question for the lecture. Yeah, for sure. No problem. Great question. You know, what would I say to the casual user of shrooms, someone who may not have an awareness of um, the importance of using them in an intentional or reverent way? What would I say to that person? I would ask them first to ask themselves why. Why am I taking this substance? Is it just to get high? Is it to escape a feeling I'm having currently? Um, This is the first step of inquiry for me that I would say to myself of, oh, why am I doing this? Because it's not something just to be done for no reason. And that's not to say the reason can't be for joy or for exploration or for uh, fun, you know? I I truly believe that there is a way in which we can use all these substances in a way that is enjoyable for many people. Um, And I say that because I think there's this, um, hmm, there's like this concept that these substances are used only for healing work, just like healing, healing, healing work, you know, trauma, this and that. Yes, for sure. It's why the West is looking at these substances so much. But going for a walk in nature with some mushrooms can connect you back to yourself in a way that no other ceremony can, that no other medicine can sometimes. Um, and you can have a blast doing it and you can be safe and you can have, you can do it in a responsible way in which you are being cared for. Um, so first I would tell that person to ask themselves, why are they doing this? Why would they like to do this? Always have a reason, hopefully have a good intention, a clear intention. And then I don't know if this is what you're seeking, but maybe something that I would tell someone who was going to go do this. Um, are you asking for that as well? Um, I would say maybe it's not the wisest to go to a party and and eat a bag of mushrooms. Um, I don't know where that person would be at psychologically. Maybe they can handle it. Um, but I would say there's certain ceremonial, um, 
ceremonial practices that are very simple that can be implemented into your experience that will greatly increase the chances of you having a meaningful, long-lasting, beneficial experience. And these things would be, you know, have someone there to support you, even if they're, you know, what the West calls a, a, a trip sitter, you know. Um, have, you know, water, have some fruits, have, you know, something to make you comfortable. Uh, tell someone where you're going. All, all these very obvious, almost like, parental things someone would say, but it's without this understanding that these medicines are very powerful, that people find themselves in um, difficult situations. Um, so I would say do it with intention, do it with reverence. You know, something that I wanted to mention earlier as well is that the beautiful thing about uh, ceremony, the beautiful thing about therapy as well, which I'm a big proponent for, is that there's a beginning and there's an end to the session. There is an opening and there is a closing to every ceremony. I think that is very important psychologically because if you have an experience and something terrible happens in the experience and then you just go on with your day and you go to sleep, psychologically that has not really come to an end. Psychologically you're still in that state. But when you're speaking to a therapist, and something difficult comes up, and even if you haven't resolved it completely in that session, you know they say, "Okay, our time is over now. Let's um, you know go on with your, with our days. Uh, maybe you can bring this back to me next week." It's the same thing in, in ceremony. We say, "Hey guys, this space is closed. This time of working within the medicine space is closed now, and don't worry, you can continue to work on this issue at a at a later point." And psychologically, that does something for us as humans that I think is very important. So I bring it up to your question of um, how someone could do this in a better way. Have a clear beginning and end. And the way in which we mark a clear beginning and end is through certain ceremonial practices, such as an opening prayer and a closing prayer, an opening meditation and a closing meditation. As I said, these different ways in which um, Native peoples have been working with that both signify a practical use and a symbolic and spiritual use. So those are some things I would say to, to someone like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see medicalization uh, as a way to prolong tradition or as a threat to tradition or something like that? Right now, I see it as a threat. Um, because some of the bills that are being passed in this very state do not protect the use of these medicines within a uh, ceremonial context. They only permit the use of them in uh, very tightly regulated clinical settings, which I think it's nuanced because for good reason. I, I do get it. <laughs> I mean, without some of those parameters, as I'm saying, there's certain people who, as, as one of my, my good brothers says, he says, um, the medicines are for everyone, but not everyone is ready for the medicines. And I understand these strict protocols that we have here. I support some of them. But what I don't support is seeing that as the only way. I mean, has anyone here seen the documentary Descending the Mountain? Anyone? It's a beautiful documentary that is studying the use of psilocybin mushrooms um, scientifically and clinically. But within the studies, 
they are guided by um, this Buddhist monk at this temple in nature. And some of the only studies may be the only study I've ever seen that puts the user into a natural setting and have them go through meditations. And everyone in this movie who participated in these studies were very experienced meditators. Um, and when I saw that movie, it was, I saw it when it first came out, so some of it's escaping my memory. But when I saw that movie, I said, wow, this is a great step towards using these in a medical, clinical way while also incorporating tradition. You know, simply having someone able to be in an open air setting, to me, I'm sorry, it's obvious that that should be the case more often instead of being in a very, you know, sterile, white, blank room, you know, which is not always the case. I know sometimes they put things on the walls and it'd be cozy. I've, I've, seen, I've seen all the videos, you know, they should put some tie-dye hippie thing up on the wall, I don't know, or some cool lights. But uh, I think doing these uh, studies that are happening right now, that they could be done in more of a way that includes some of the ways indigenous peoples suggest us to work with these compounds and with these medicines. Um, obviously, there's compounds and there's substances that are being used uh, medically right now that do not have a ceremonial history, such as MDMA, um, such as ketamine and these other things. So I still think some of the native teachings apply even to those substances and some of the ways that um, someone could have a deeper, more beautiful experience apply. But maybe those substances are more um, in line with uh, using them in those type of medical settings. But nonetheless, do I think medicalization is a threat to um, these ceremonial practices and to these traditions? In some ways, yes, I do. I truly do. Um, and it goes back to not seeing these things as um, sacred resources and the over-harvesting of certain um, plant resources, the, the, the ramifications of what has already occurred. I don't know if, I'm not going to say the exact statistic because I don't know it, I don't want to make it up, but it's very high. The amount of pharmaceutical medications that exist on the market right now that are directly linked to plants is astronomically high. So there are people hired by pharmaceutical companies to go down to the Amazon, to speak to the native peoples, to say, what plant do you have that cures this? The elders of that community tell these pharmaceutical partners, what plant heals this? This is how you use it. This is how we use it. This is the extraction method we use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then a uh, single alkaloid or the key ingredient of that plant is isolated, synthetically produced, and it gets mass marketed. I mean, from aspirin to birth control to blood thinners to uh, muscle relaxants, almost Almost all medicines have a plant origin. Some of it has been discovered just through research, but most of it has come from the wisdom of indigenous peoples. 
And do those people get a percentage of that pharmaceutical stock? No, they don't. They don't at all. Mark Plotkin, a student of Schulte's, speaks about this a lot in his first book, Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice. So, yes, I do see it as, as a threat in some, some ways. I also do see the immense benefits that legalization can have on our society. Brother right here. Yeah, um, I don't know, I kind of have this weird anxiety about the fact that like, past medicalization, um, just like knowing the power of like, for example, lobbying and stuff like that, it seems like at some point it wouldn't be surprising if like private entities were trying to like, I don't know, somehow use these psychedelic things to like sort of push um, certain agendas in their way. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of like thinking like psychedelics is like some sort of weird component that goes on top of like, say, marketing or advertising that can put people in a very um, like particular mental state. Do you think there's oh, anything that that's juicy, be, man? Like, <laughs> like, do you think anything can be done about that? Is, I know I'm kind of going to tinfoil hat one, but it just kind of seems somewhat inevitable. Yeah, we could go there. Hey, but, um, I mean, that's happening without plants and psychedelics, man. <laughs> just to be direct. Yeah, um, just and and, and the, the question was, essentially, I'll paraphrase. <laughs> um, what do I think of the possibilities of these psychedelic substances being used for nefarious purposes such as um, programming or um, subconscious marketing um, or some type of essentially um, control over ourselves. Is that correct? Sure. No, in in some way. Ah, yeah, man, I don't know. We would need a couple more hours to explore that topic, to be honest, man. Um, I believe it happens in other ways, if I'm just being blunt. Um, I think it's happened historically, um, not just in modern times. It's happened in in other ways. Um, Would LSD be considered sort of like an experiment to... I mean, yeah, they were they were researching how to use it as a as a bioweapon in many ways. I mean, at, at one time for sure, and they realized that once once the soldiers started rolling around in the grass and were having a great time, they said, "Oh, this this is probably not the best thing to give another another people's military," you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, man, that that's a that's a tough one to go down that rabbit hole. But good question. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't understand um, why or the reason why you didn't drink such shit uh, during these uh, four, seven, nine, and thirteen days retreat. The the pro- the process of vision quest, this tradition of vision quest. Why I didn't why I didn't eat and drink during those times. Yeah. Why why I was fasting. So as I said, this tradition of humans fasting can be found in every single. Uh, people's history. There, there was always people who would go into nature or in the comfort of their home would would fast from food and from water. And there's a whole slew of reasons for that. I mean, from boiling down to what's happening now in the West with this craze of intermittent fasting and the benefits that has on the body, all the way down to the ancient use of fast as a way of entering um, into trance into psychedelic states without having to consume anything. Um, And when you go without something as essential as food and water, you quickly learn how essential food and water is. Thus, moving forward in life, you treat those things very differently. You're more um, motivated to take care of the land. You're more motivated to protect the waters. You're more motivated not to um, 
just throw your trash in the ocean, you know? Um, and specifically, what are the other reasons why one would fast from food and water for that long? Um, you're not only fasting from food and water during the vision quest, you're fasting from um, any distraction of any sort. So to be clear in the tradition of the four days, seven days, nine days, 13 days, it's only the first year of four days where you don't drink food and water. The other years, on the fifth day, you get some food and you get some, some medicine. So oh, that's but, basically uh, your water. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, 13, you can't yeah. really go 13 days. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, sorry, sorry for sometimes speaking yeah. in a way in which, in, which, in which I assume everyone knows the specific lineage. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you for asking. Actually, I, I wanted to circle back to that. Um, no, it's only the first year that you get nothing. Okay. You have the, your blankets, and you have your clothes, and you have the tree. But your water is ayahuasca. Well, in the second year, when they bring you your support, they bring you... Okay, I can say exactly what I got. I got the, on the fifth day, you know, a caravan of people come. And let me also, just to go deeper into the process of vision quests, since it's something I love to speak about. It's not like you just go up a mountain by yourself, then you fast for that amount of time, and then that's it, and then you come down. No, it's a ceremony. It's a very ancient ceremony in which you are being held by a council of elders and teachers. So they plant you on the mountain and they harvest you from the mountain when they come to get you. There is a sacred fire at their home, base camp essentially, that is being lit the entirety of your quest that cannot go out. I mean, there's shifts of people waking up in the night to keep this fire going. This fire is essentially the heart of the ceremony. It's your protector. Every time they eat or drink food, before they eat and drink the food, they walk to this fire and they feed the fire symbolically to feed you up on the mountain. They're praying for you every single day. They're singing for you over a big drum that you can hear sometimes if you're close enough. They're singing for you at sunrise and sunset, supporting you, cheering you on. But you don't see them the whole time. You don't see anyone the whole time. Even if there's other people vision questing, you're completely isolated. And you're also isolated within a confined area. So there's a process before you do your vision quest in which it's a preparatory process in which you need to produce what they refer to as prayers or what are prayers. So essentially these prayers that are turned into a, a physical representation of your prayers is a cotton cloth of a specific color depending on the amount of days you're doing a pinch of tobacco. Tobacco is a very sacred, sacred plant to all peoples of the Americas. Um, before it was bastardized in many ways, tobacco is like number one in many communities. You take a pinch of tobacco, you say a prayer for something you want in your life, you say a prayer for somebody you care about, you put this pinch of tobacco in this uh, cotton piece of fabric, and then you tie this tiny little pouch to a string. Maybe some people in here know about prayer ties. Um, so you make, you do that 365 times. And you're tying these little pouches of tobacco to this one piece of cotton string. When you go up to your vision quest place, whoever is guiding you through the vision quest unrolls this yarn of prayers and it serves as your perimeter to sit inside of the whole time. So you are 
confined to this small space that you cannot go out of. It's not like you're fasting and you're walking through the mountains. You're in a space the size of probably the circle of people we're in right here, less, less than that, actually. Surrounded by these prayers that you spent either years, months, or days preparing um, that support you during your time. So that describes the, the context of the quest a little bit more, but to answer your question, the second year when you received the support of food and medicine on the fifth day, I received a big wedge of watermelon. I received two bananas, small bananas, one orange, one slice of cantaloupe, one apple. What's cantaloupe? Melon. Um, uh, yeah, a type of melon. Um, and one granadilla, which is kind of like a passion fruit kind of um, fruit that they have in Ecuador. And then I received a liter and a half of peyote tea, not water. <laughs> so that, 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 that's your water right there. You know, it's, it's diluted a little bit. <laughs> um, in the later years, you, you receive some other things, but um, that's probably as much as I should share in detail on a public level about <laughs> that path and, and the way things are, are done in that way. So, yeah, of course. Hey, I'm Max. Thanks so much for uh, for speaking with us and being here. Of course. Um, you talked a bit about um, the importance of having ceremonial space and having having the ceremonies be relational, this kind of thing. Um, and one element of uh, Ames and I were actually talking about this the other day. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Ames was emphasizing as an important part of, of traditions as well as this relationship to the land mm -hmm. um, and to plants as well, but the land in including what we would call abiotic, like non-living organisms or something like water that you were, you were also talking about, mm -hmm. um, and how in, in Western contexts there really often isn't that same emphasis place. Like you were saying, you know, you'll be in a room, sterile room or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it'll be like, oh, dress it up a little bit, make it nice, but there isn't the same kind of deep, like, this is sacred to have it be. Yep. Um, I guess I have a few different questions I want to ask, but I guess uh, wherever you feel like you want to take this. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really interested in, in you personally, like having come, kind of grown up in this um, way of seeing things and, and now learning learning from these other traditions, mm -hmm. like how you, how the way you relate to land or, and plants, but like in particular also abiotic land mm -hmm. um, in your day-to-day -day life and then also with psychedelics. Mm. And then maybe also if there are any like uh, within kind of Western psychedelic research context or medical context, like if there are a few, a few practices related to that that you think would be helpful or beneficial yeah. um, to implement or to think about. Great. Thank you, Max. Um, um, how... Uh, how my relationship to the land and uh, what some people would consider abiotic uh, substances, um, how that has changed through my use of plant medicines within ceremonial context, both inside ceremony and in my everyday life. 
I'm trying my best to rephrase these questions for those who, who didn't hear the question. I'm so sorry if I didn't get it perfectly. Yeah, that's, right. that's great. Um, and then maybe also like bring like what we can bring and yeah, learn from. Totally. Okay, and you asked for my personal perspective of this. Um, you know where my mind goes right away is the most um, miraculous and unbelievable experiences I've had in nature inside of uh, sacred ceremonies um, that I myself as a skeptic would not believe if other people told me. And what I'm speaking to is the relationship that we have with nature around us and this interaction, this communication that occurs with the nature that we are residing with it. So for example, you know, I, I sometimes even in a setting like this, uh, you know, my mind automatically jumps to, you know, whoever would be skeptical, which I don't, I don't judge, you know, I, I, I know I would be as well. And I know I have been as well. But for example, um, I spoke about these water prayers, right? That happen often in, in many ceremonies, most ceremonies within the, the family I work within. There have been countless times where it is a clear, sunny day, or it is a clear, chill evening, not a cloud in the sky. Right when the moment when they begin to prepare the water and they begin to pray for the water, start to hear the faintest trickle come from the roof of the Maloka. And then the clouds are rolling and it starts to rain heavy. When there was no rain on the forecasts, and not only was there not rain on the forecasts, there was uh, no clouds in the sky, there was no indication of there being rain. The prayer is held for about an hour or less sometimes, and usually afterwards the rain will either stick around for a bit or it'll just it'll go away. The first time I experienced this in ceremony, I said, Wow, what an amazing coincidence. The moment they started praying for the water, it started raining. Like, that's so cool, you know? And then someone said, like, like no, like, you know, that's, that's part of the communication of what's happening here. Um, I said, I yeah, yeah, right, you know? Um, after seeing that four, five, six, seven, eight, ten times, um, what I came to understand, especially from my inquiry of, like, what's happening here? It's not that someone is praying for the water and they're making it rain. That's not what's happening. It's this symbiotic and, and synchronistic exchange that's happening between what is happening within the space and what is happening in nature. It's this coming into to rhythm, into harmony, into sync. And it's the unexplainable phenomena of... Um, Synchronicities. I mean, I think everyone here has experienced some really profound synchronicities that are unexplainable. I mean, truly, truly, truly unexplainable synchronicities. I am not wise enough or intelligent enough or would even dare to try to explain how some of these things happen. I don't know, but I just know outside of even that example in connection to the land, to your question, 
things have occurred in my life that I just can't explain. And sometimes I just don't share them with people because of that, you know, or unless I share them with people I trust. So to answer your question directly, that changed my relationship to land in a very specific way. Um, seeing that the way you sing to, you know, a, a meadow or to a stream or to a forest and there's this like reciprocal exchange you feel sometimes, this like mystical, unexplainable, you know, you're playing the flute in the forest and a bird comes and lands on your shoulder and you know, an animal comes and piques its curiosity and you get this like hawk that flies over you and it's super significant because you were just speaking about hawks, you know, an hour earlier, all these different things, you know. You start to see this, this reciprocal exchange between you and the nature around you. And to me, it showed me why ancient peoples, the first religion or spiritual belief that has existed on this planet as far as history goes, is animism. Seeing that everything is alive, seeing that everything has a spirit. You know, we came from animistic peoples to shamanistic people and to these more kind of organized religious peoples. But the first was seeing that everything has its own uh, sentience, um, its own spirit. Yeah. And this is where um, my beliefs are my beliefs and my experiences are my experiences. And as I said at the beginning, I can't speak to anyone else. You know, I don't, I do not judge anyone else who has not had one of those experiences or who thinks what I'm speaking about this is nonsense. I don't judge them. I'll, I'll sit down and have a conversation with your experiences openly, you know, but that has changed my connection to how I perceive nature and the land around me and how can we implement uh, the possibilities of some of that, some of those mystical experiences or that connection to land occurring within this medicalized context is simply to do what I have already been suggesting during this talk is to have people do these studies, even hook them up to the heart rate monitors and everything, do it in nature, put them in a beautiful cabin where they have this view of a river or something, you know? Um, connect these people to the land more during these experiences. Um, so that's the only suggestion I can continue to make to some of the current um, medical studies that are happening with these substances. Mm -hmm. um, I guess this westernized model of using psychedelics in therapy for a therapeutic session is not stoppable anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, so also, of course, people like me or other people growing up in this Western world also are trying to give this type of therapy to people. Mm -hmm. um, and then on Saturday, there was a conference at the Harvard Divinity School, and mm -hmm. there was one speaker saying that she didn't really like, or maybe I misunderstood her, um, she didn't really like that some people went to elders or like a shaman um, observing how they do the session and then sort of copying that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and bringing this type of session back here. Yep. But then at the same time, I always want to, we, we don't want to not, because from your talk it seemed like, okay, we should listen to elders and how they do it. And again, I don't want to steal this type of therapy mm -hmm. from them, but I mm -hmm. still want to learn from them to apply this type of therapy correctly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, I guess I was just like, yeah, that's a great what's point. your opinion, like how 
Western therapist should mm -hmm. handle maybe correctly. Yes. Yes. So the question is, how can the West implement more of the practices of indigenous and native peoples into their um, therapeutic models without just copying and stealing, you know? Yeah. And, how, and how can anyone, even outside of therapy, be inspired by something a uh, shaman in Peru teaches them without just taking it and copying? Um, to me, it all comes down to the concept of reciprocity, again. So, if you are inspired or you're receiving um, inspiration or wisdom or a tool to better serve someone, you know, back in your culture, and you truly want to learn from this, um, this native teacher or this medicine man or this medicine woman, you truly want to learn from them. One, it's very important to actually spend time with these people, get to know them. Um, don't just treat it as a transaction. Oh, I'm gonna go to Peru, mm -hmm. I'm gonna sit in this ayahuasca retreat, then I'm gonna go back to Los Angeles and I'm gonna serve ayahuasca. And I'm gonna take all the wisdom and, and teachings they have. It shouldn't be a transaction in that way because something a dear sister and someone who I consider a beloved teacher of mine uh, from Ecuador was speaking to me about just, just the other day was that you go down to some of these communities, you go deep into the jungle, you go high into the mountains, and you speak to some of these elders who are in their late 70s, 80s, 90s, and you see that they have no apprentices. You see that their family members, the younger people of the younger generations, have fled to the cities. You see that they want a taste of modernity. They want technology. They want the fast-paced lifestyle. They want to be able to eat whatever they want, all the stuff that's in the city. They see the stuff that grandpa or grandma is doing as some old witchcraft that serves me no purpose to learn. And you see this um, abundance or this crisis of elders who have no one to teach. And as, as my, my sister was, was reminding me yesterday, then you see many people from the West who are so curious and who are so willing to learn some of these things and they go seeking someone who can teach them. And many times those same elders, if the person comes in true earnest, if they come with true intention and they see potential in that person, they accept that person, they adopt that person. They say, wow, here you are at my doorstep willing to learn even when my own people aren't willing to. Um, and I can see that you have capability and I can see that you're uh, you have a reciprocal exchange with me and my peoples. Um, I'm willing to, to show you these things as long as you promise to carry them with responsibility and you go through this line of initiation, you know? Um, so to answer your question, I'm not saying to implement more ancient practices that you need to go on a 10-year apprenticeship with a shaman. I'm, I'm not saying that by any means. But I say it's important to forge real and authentic connections with people who have at least a deep tie to these ancestral traditions and to sit with them, to learn from them, to, to express why you want to learn. And then either A, ask for permission to share certain techniques that are very specific or B, um, know that there are certain things that these 
people are doing that are universal practices that they're just reminding you of. Mm-hmm. You know, many people, many of the people I work with in Central and South America, they say, oh, all these people from the West who are coming to experience these medicines, we're just the first step to connect you back to your own indigenous roots, mm-hmm. to connect you back to your own traditions, or to connect you back to the understanding that we are all, uh, we all belong to this planet. And to make a sacred fire and to, to sit in front of it and sing, you don't need to go through an initiation for that. To learn a certain sacred song, you don't need to, to go through 10 years of apprenticeship for that. Um, and to invoke the beauty and the wisdom and the knowledge of nature, you don't need anyone's approval for that. These people just may remind you of how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, implore or encourage people to learn with an open heart and to be reciprocal in the learning, even if that reciprocity translates as sitting down and having a conversation with that person, not just going in and leaving and taking the information, because we know that's, that's happening a lot, and that also leads to um, not the best of work. So, yeah. So I want to be mindful of everyone's time. It's around 840. I know some people might need to head out. It is such an engaging yes. discussion. Um, we have the room until around 9. So there's time for a few more questions, some thoughts and discussions. But we do have to put the room back into place <laughs> around 9. So maybe we can do like one or two more questions. And then as we put the room back together, I'm sure Andrew would love to stay around and, and talk with some more people. For sure. Sounds great. But, yeah. and, and with that being said, thank you, Yana. With that being said, I am very open to spending time and speaking with each and every one of you about this topic. If you want to connect with me on social media, if you want my email, if you want my phone number, I'm, I will always make time to speak to people about this. And I have different, you know, ceremonial offerings I'm a part of in Portugal and other places. Um, if anyone's interested in having more resources of really wanting to connect with some of these practices. Um, and I'm always willing to have a conversation. So this isn't the end. If you want to continue to chat, I mean, I'm down to speak outside the building as well, if you want. So that being said, anybody have another question or also, yes, Joe, um, but one moment also you can share something that is not a question. I want to open, you know, this closing, these closing minutes of that. If someone just wants to share something about their own experience. I'd like to share something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think between how we treat medicine, we, we say plant medicine at the moment, it's very important to acknowledge that the spirit of the plant is a huge part of the huge role to play with this. And to acknowledge the spirit of the plant is a very, it's just a simple gesture. You can take a rib of your hair or get some tobacco and offer it and thank it for what it's going to offer you. And we've been doing some plant journey work with a, a local herbalist here, and we journey to the spirit of the plant with just a beat of a drum. We don't ingest anything. We do three journeys. We journey to the spirit of the plant first, and it will introduce ourselves. We offer it a gift, and we either drop into the roots or go up to the leaves on a journey. And then the next journey, we just drop a, drop a pile of the plant on our palm of our hand and it starts feeding us an awful lot of information. It depends on what the plant is. It's just telling us the medicine. 
you might be cramping up or you might be, your heart might be beating the colors you're seeing are red. And then we would do a fluorescence on the third eye. And afterwards we would share our story, what we're after experiencing, and then we open up whatever herbal book. And all the information is just after being handed to us, uh, given to us from the spirit of the plant without ingesting anything. And uh, before I had the beautiful opportunity of uh, being in ceremony uh, with Andrew not too long ago, um, I was called to mushrooms that they were calling to me. I hadn't used them for many, many years. And uh, so they came to me, so I brought them, I put them on an altar, and uh, I offered them a little gift, and I spoke to them. And, uh, and during those days, I had a sense that they were with me, and they were affecting me, and they were teaching me. And I didn't need to see them as medicine. Mm. And the difference between sacred ceremony and these plants and using it as just a medicine, in that sense, is when we use it in ceremony, we acknowledge spirit, all beings of earth, sky, of our elements. And our relationship is open up to the spirit of all of these things being present in a sacred container, mm. which we all share, which we all are part of this magnificent city of whatever. And, uh, and then the use of just taking medicine to say, I'm going to use this, your relationship is going to be different mm -hmm. without saying, I honor you, the spirit of this plant, to teach me. Yes. And as they're all teachers. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jones. Beautifully said. It's, um, it's so important for me to see all of these, these medicines as uh, standalone beings and sentient spirits, you know, and what you speak to, I remember the first time I had ever had an experience where I felt as if I had ingested a medicine without physically ingesting it, um, just being in its presence. And it changed my perspective of, um, my relationship with this, with this intelligent being, what I consider an intelligent being. And um, it's, it's in this way that, uh, you know, the, the phrase, all my relations, that the Lakota people say, for all my, for all my relatives, for all my relations. Yeah. Yes. It's, exactly. It's, um, it's seeing everything as our relative, seeing, you know, this tree as my brother, this bird as my sister, this uh, fungus as my mother. And um, whether or not you want to literally perceive that and, and see it as that, at least with that understanding, you're more willing to respect that being. So thank you, Joe. Yeah. Thank you. That is a beautiful tradition of the Kota. The idea of Kuama relations, you get down at all fours. And when you do, we come out of our ego self. As our ego self, of course, rules everything when we want to be healers, when we want to be great people and making medicine and all of that. Um, but the idea of dropping out of our own headspace, or our ego self, mm -hmm. brings us closer to a relationship with everything around us. Yes. Especially the plant which needs us most. Thank you, Joe. Mm -hmm. I love you too. This is a childhood childhood friend of mine. Who, um, See you at Harvard right now. <laughs> he had, he had. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I love you, I love you as well. Thank you, brother. Thank you. This is a a man who had his life 
probably the biggest transformation story with ayahuasca out of anyone I know, out of all a decade of knowing people who have done this work. This man has had a, a crazy life-changing experience during his time in Ecuador that has led to a, a beautiful family and a very successful farm. So thank you for that. Thank you for being here. Thank you, man. I just of course. want to let you know, like I let everybody to know that I witnessed this man dedicate his life to this path. Mm. And to see you here now, brother, that just makes me so mm. proud of you. Thank you, brother. That means everything. Thank you, bro. Thank you for your support. Thank you all for, for being here. I love you too. Thank you guys for my sister here. You have a question? Yeah, no, I would love to share. Mm -hmm. um, my name is Ames. I'm from the Andes of Ecuador. I'm Kiko Saraguro. Mm, I was seeing it in your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm from Kichwa, or I'm Kichwa Saraguro. I'm from the town of Saraguro, which is in the southern Andes of Ecuador. Yes. I grew up here. But I would, I resonated with a lot of what you're sharing. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is the knowledge um, of my elders, and something that I've started to try to tap into in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. um, due to a very like life-changing experience when I was, you know, having a lot of suicidal thoughts and had left Harvard. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to share a little bit more about the importance of land. I mm -hmm. like Max had brought that up, mm -hmm. um, and I think. Sometimes I, I really appreciate that you're talking from your experience. So I think I would also like to share, you know, from my experience growing up in an indigenous community. Um, land is everything because it is the way it affects the way we organize socially, the way we organize politically, the way we organize economically, ecologically. It determines all sort of ways of relating because it is a teacher. And that's I love what you guys were saying about it being a teacher. What I also mentioned to Max was that. Land has memory, mm. and land has memory because a plant dies, and then the same ingredients, the same elements that make up that plant go back into the earth. The way we're you know, also put back in the earth, and the way we disintegrate into the earth and are reborn into something new through the use of fungi. Um, and I think I love hearing about when people are sort of brought into these unbelievable experiences with land, but I also want to mention that it is something that you can tap into in your very quotidian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I try to explain why, like what spirituality means to me as someone who is indigenous and, and Native American, I, I like to explain it as gravity. Like Westerners always believe in gravity, it's not there, but we believe in it because we can feel it and we want something, the way we're stuck to the ground. And I like to explain that is sort of what anchors our spirituality to life and to land. Um, it's that feeling that you can't describe it, that everything is unified in some way. Why? Because someone wakes you up every day, and that's Taita Inti, what we would call a grandfather son. Mm -hmm. There's someone who puts you to bed every day, that's Mama Kia, that's your mother moon. Um, there's also that very air you're breathing is also a spirit. Um, and fire, you know, that, that very crucial element is also a spirit in itself. And those are the four crucial elements. Um, so I like to just remind everyone that it doesn't have to be this unbelievable experience to remind you that mm. everything is living around you, that the very beating of your heart reminds you that the Charles River is rushing, reminds you that there's a bird in the yard that's chirping, mm. reminds you that some, some animal is making its way to sleep as you're also making your mm. way to sleep. And so that very ability to just take one breath and mm. like feel your heart beating is also the beating of the earth and reminds you that there's something very sacred that ties everyone together. And that's just that feeling of being alive. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just wanted to share that. 
and just to respond, I know I want to be respectful for everyone's time too. Um, you've mentioned a Temascal, which is a sweat lodge ceremony that also is a Native American or North, Native North American ceremony. And I think to respond to your question of land, I have a story that maybe would take a minute and a half. This is um, adapted by a an ethnographer as a culmination of a bunch of stories of how the sweat lodge came to be. And I think it's also a really important example of why this this element of nature, this element of land is so crucial to this sort of experience. And without it, you lose a lot of anchoring as to what it means. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, a long time ago, a sickness came to the first people. It was decided that a council should be held to discuss the problem. From every direction, all living beings came together in a great council to discuss the situation. For four days, they fasted, prayed, meditated and sought visions and guidance together, seeking medicine to help in some way. Eagle and Hummingbird were the first to come into the circle from the east, bringing a spark from the sun to light the sacred fire. Trees and beaver were next to come in from the south, offering some wood for the fire, rocks from the earth to surround it, and bringing their little sister, Tobacco, to make offerings. Bear came next from the west, bringing a basket filled with water from the rushing river to help contain the fire. From the north, hawk and deer came into the circle, bringing the quietness of wind to give breath of life to the sacred fire. As the many clans of living beings talked and prayed together, no one noticed that the fire had become quite large. In a panic, Raven hustled over to the edge of the fire, trying to help contain it, but as he got close, the fire singed his feathers black. Startled, he tripped over some of the rocks, trying to get away from the heat, and knocked over some of Bear's basket full of water onto the fire. As it, began to, uh, sorry, as it began to steam, Raven started squawking for help. Bear urged all the animals to hurry and cover Raven with their hides. As all the animals covered Raven, he continued to sing and began to sweat. In this way, the entire community had offered their support to Raven in his time of need. When it was all over, Raven exclaimed that he had a great vision that this was to be called a sweat lodge that would be used for prayer and for healing. That is how the first sweat lodge came to be, and that is how Raven became known as a great doctor. But he was never a good singer, and so it is good. Thank you for sharing so much. There's um, something I've, I've seen with, um, with this practice of, of ceremony and with prayer and with honoring um, all of life and what's sacred around us in that um, sometimes in ceremony, you know, you have your opportunity to, to pray, to speak in front of the group. And then right when you finish, you're like, oh, wow, there's so much more actually I wanted to say or there's so much I could have said. And I learned over the years that when you're truly living in community and when you're in alignment with those around you in the space, your brother or sister will pick up right where you left off. And um, this is what I've seen with the, with the Taitas in Ecuador. And to have you speak and to have you share was very meaningful for me. So thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you all so much. Um, it's a story adapted from every, you know, there's a diversity, yeah, yeah. there's an immense diversity of indigenous peoples, but it was adapted by an ethnographer from the First, from the first Nations. I would love if maybe you can share that with, with yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Great. So we have about five minutes, six minutes left, and then if anyone wants to get my contact and speak more, we can, we can speak more.
I think you just gave the, the perfect <laughs> ending to this talk. <laughs> Mic drop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So in closing, I want to thank each and every one of you for being here. I want to thank those who had to leave. I want to thank those who are on the live stream. I want to thank all those who have supported me in my personal journey, all those who have been patient, all those who have taken the time to hold me, to carry me, to take care of me when I've been at my lowest and to see me at my highest. Thank you very much. I give thanks to Harvard. I give thanks to Yana. I give thanks to this club. I give thanks to this resurgence of interest in these uh, ancient technologies. And I am here to continue to connect with each and every one of you. And I'm so grateful to be on this land in this moment. And I give thanks to all those who walked on these lands before me and all of those to come. Thank you all so much. Thank you.